it's hard making me not look good. As we learned last week, Lee Wood knows wooing, so. <laughs> well, it's because it's true. I remember true things. If they are factually accurate, then I remember it. All right, well, I got 6.30, so let's go ahead and dive into uh, tonight. Let me pray for us, and then if y'all want to go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 18, is going to be where we're going to hang out for a little bit. That's where we're going to start. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the cold. We thank you for the fact that you are the one that has uh, these storehouses laden with snow and lightning, as we see from Job, and that you are the one who is the God of all creation. And God, that even today, as we are witnessing um, the acts of creation as you have designed it to work, it's just a testimony to your faithfulness and uh, your goodness. And so, God, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for the way in which you have created the world to work and to operate. And I, now I just pray that we would be um, obedient children and seeking to understand the world in which you have created. And part of that is by listening to instruction from Scripture, uh, specifically from our Savior Jesus. And so tonight, I pray that that would happen as we are looking at the parables. And God, I pray that you would be honored by that. And as is my custom, I would just ask that you would pray for me. Just take a moment and pray that the things I say would be accurate, that they would be correct, and that they would be uh, in harmony with the gospel. If you would, pray for me. Father, you are high and above us in every way, in every regard. You are categorically other from us. You will stand outside of time. You stand outside of creation. And for that, we are thankful. God, I pray that as we are endeavoring tonight to talk about the parables and understand how we can interpret rightly what it is that have been written for our instruction, God, I pray that you would give me understanding through your Holy Spirit to be able to communicate well. God, I pray that you would give all of us wisdom to be able to comprehend and to have our hearts and our minds illuminated by your spirit. And that God, that we would be able to honor you as a result even more. And so Father, we give you this time and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we are in week 12. And so this has been uh, chugging along for a good chunk of time. And we are quickly approaching the end of this whole thing. Uh, so we've got tonight and then next week, we will not be meeting at all. Um, we're not going to be doing any of the Wednesday night stuff for Thanksgiving. And then when we come back from Thanksgiving, we've only got two more weeks. And there you have it. So we'll have the epistles is what we'll handle, not next week, but the next time we meet. And then uh, we have apocalyptic literature, and that is all she wrote. So let me give us a bit of a running start from where we were uh, last couple of weeks. So um, number one. We talked about two weeks ago the prophets and how prophets write in a poetic style and that they are covenantal enforcers and that their announcement of judgment is a gracious act. I think that those are very clearly um, main themes that we see from the prophets, but really if you look in the minor prophets, you'll see that over and over again. So that's what we talked about two weeks ago. And then last week is when we introduced um, the gospel genres. Um, and so we talked about just these four books, and one of the questions we had to ask is, well, why do we have four accounts? Why not one? Why not 16 or 600? Whatever. Like, why do we only have four, and why do we have four exactly? 
And the end of the day, what we need is all four. The answer is we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we believe that we need all four accounts because they all tell us something a little bit different, right? And the reason why we need all four is because each evangelist, each gospel writer, they have different goals and they have a different audience in mind. And so what they do is they pick and choose individual um, scenes, narratives, different portions of Jesus' life, and they talk about it in a different way because that's going to help accomplish their goal for their intended audience. Which brings us to that last point that we don't have to have an exhaustive list of every possible detail in order for something to be correct. If I don't tell you what the air temperature is and the relative humidity and what day you know, on the year uh, out of 365 days in a year, what day it happened on, I didn't lie to you. I wasn't misleading you. Whenever I told the story about me and Casey in our first date, I didn't mention any of those things. But yet, I was still telling the truth, right? And so, telling the truth is much more a function of accurate depiction than exhaustive detail giving, right? So whenever we come to the Gospels, that's really important because there will be different details in different Gospels, yeah? So, we talked about a lot of uh, big stuff there with the Gospels, and tonight we're going to talk about one singular kind of subgenre within the Gospel narratives. And we're going to be talking about parables. That's literally the only thing we're talking about tonight. And here's the reason why we're going to spend just tonight talking about parables in general. Um, whenever you read historical narratives, so if you're reading something like Joshua, you're going to be looking for repetitious um, words, themes, phrases, locations. You're looking for those markers to tell you when time or setting has changed. You're looking for all those details. All of that information you take from historical narratives and you can lay that over on the Gospels and you're going to be all right. Like you're going to be able to pick up on different change in, uh, changes in time and changes in scene, um, who is being spoken to and with, what the conversations are. So historical narrative is going to get you a long way in the Gospels. However, the parables seem to be one of those things that trips up a lot of Christians. So we're going to talk all night tonight, not all night, not all night, I promise. We've got 54 minutes to talk about the Gospels, specifically parables. But first off, I want to hear from you. When I say parables, or if I were to ask you to describe what parables are and what they are doing, what Jesus is doing with them, what would you say? What is, what is it that Jesus is trying to accomplish by using parables, and what are parables? You tell me. Okay, we've got like three. So, Ashley? Relatable stories, okay. Charlie? Say that one more time. Talks with instructions. I like that. So it's not just a story, like there's a point to the story. Sharon? Sharon? Say. Story to get a point across, okay. What else? Yes, sir. Gary? All right, so it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Has anyone ever heard that? Or an earthly story with a heavenly purpose? Okay. My goal tonight is to tear that apart. At some point, some level, some level. Not completely, but some level. Ed? It's told in a, in a setting that they can relate to. Okay. So a relating, relatable story, but it's in a setting or a context in which they are relating to. What more times than not are some of the examples or illustrations that Jesus uses in the parables? They're normally related to what area of life? 
agriculture is one of them, right? Whether we're talking about growing crops or like goats and sheep, right? So those are two big areas. Why does Jesus pick those two specific groups or that one area of life? Why does Jesus use that, John Jones? College professors can be wrong, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, so to boil that down, why does Jesus use or draw from agriculture? Because they lived in an agrarian society. That was something that was not just relatable, but it was like knowable. That's what they did, right? And then the second part of that is like, yes, that's something that's kind of foreign to us as Westerners, as Americans who live in the United States, even in a rural area with a lot of agriculture, it is foreign to us because that's not our primary substance of living. Like that's not how we make our living for most of us. But yet we do have this additional aid of technology has brought about this revolution in how we communicate and how we can actually learn with the printing press books and the whole nine, right? Anything else we want to say about the parables? All right. oh, go ahead, Sue. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, it's something that's comprehensible to people. So your comment there is that even children can understand it. Um, and if we take it culturally to different areas, we can export these stories even in the way that they are presented by Jesus and they will be something that we can understand. I wanna go ahead and tell you, Sue, that's my second thing I wanna to try to tear down a little bit tonight. You walked right into it, walked right into it. Yes, sir, Paul. We'll get you, but it's good. That's, that's exactly the comment that I was looking for because that's accurate to a point. Paul? Yep. Okay, an element of hiding. Paul just looked at my notes. Just looked at my notes. That is actually the hardest thing for us to understand about the parables, and I promise you, once we see that, it actually makes everything else easier. Once you understand how difficult Jesus is actually making it, it actually makes it easier for us, which is, I know, paradoxical, but we'll get there. Charlie, did you have another? Okay. 
Yes, and so this is where, just before we even get to that point, and I still my own thunder, like, you are absolutely correct to a point, because we are all children to a point. And I think all that's going to become really clear here in a moment. But that also with the uh, earthly stories with a heavenly purpose, well, yes, but also there's more to it than that. So we need to put all that together to get to a good understanding of the parables. Yeah? Cool? So have I sufficiently muddied the waters for us tonight? So if you came in here, you're like, oh, I know what the parables are. And then after the last, you know, seven minutes, you're like, I don't, I guess I don't even know what the parables are about. Like, actually, you do. You do know. Um, we're going to get there. I promise you it's going to be good. All right. So here's the first thing I want to show us. Parabole. And that's where we get the word parable. Okay. What parabole means, it comes from two words. Para, the para, and balo. And balo is the word for throwing. You remember in Greek, you throw a ball. Um, and so what this is, is you are casting two things beside each other. In fact, where this word normally got used originally was in maritime warfare. You would have one ship come up alongside another and they would exchange, right? And they would mirror each other as they maneuvered in the water, right? And so this is where you are placing one thing beside another. They are comparing that's where we get parable, right? That's where the word comes from. Once you see that we are making a fundamental comparison, now the elements that are going to start falling out from what the actual parable is are going to be really clear, yeah? So this is what a parable, this is where we get the word from. This is what a parable is and how it's used. This is what the rest of the slide is. So what does Jesus use parables for? Primarily, he uses parables to teach about the kingdom of God. Now, yes, he uses parables to teach about other aspects of living in the kingdom of God, about what it means to be a child of God, what it means to live um, in a society ruled by God. But at the end of the day, I think all those things feed into him teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God. Okay, And we're going to see that here in just a bit. Um, I want to read for us Mark chapter 4, verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> this kind of compares both of these things, these two points that we just made. Mark 40, or excuse me, not Mark 4, verse 30 and 31. Mark 4, 30 and 31 says this. Jesus said, What can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed. And then he tells the parable. So he talks about what do we compare, parabole, right? What are we comparing the parable, or excuse me, the, the kingdom of God to? It is like a, and he calls that a, grain of a mustard seed, right? He says it's like a mustard seed. And then he goes and he tells it's this tiny little thing. It's the smallest seed, but it grows to be this huge thing where even birds are hanging out in there. It's, there's this shocking nature that comes along with it, yeah? So primarily Jesus is using parables to teach, about, teach us about the kingdom of God. And here's the big thing. This is the biggest thing and the hardest thing for us to understand. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Jesus uses parables intentionally to reveal and obscure at the same time. He is intentionally obfuscating things as he is teaching. Does that make sense? So this is where I want to kind of knock down those two ideas of, oh, well, Jesus was an excellent teacher and every single thing he ever taught, he, people just immediately understood. Well, actually, no, because if his point was to teach in such a way that only some would understand it, then, then him being a great teacher where everyone can understand, that's not necessarily the same. Or if it's a heavenly, or excuse me, an earthly story with a heavenly purpose, and if it's all just about 
what heaven is like, kingdom of God. We're getting there, but like he talks about what we're supposed to do in the meantime and what the kingdom is like and how we live in response, right? So this is the hardest thing for us to comprehend, but let me read this for us. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And we're going to look at the parallel passage in Mark chapter 4 a little bit later on, but this is what Matthew says. You don't have to turn to Matthew 13. I'll just read it to us. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to us as the disciples? Why do you speak to the crowds as uh, using parables? And he, Jesus answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous terms. He's talking to the disciples. You who are with me, it's been given to you to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. However... But to them, it has not been given. Okay, with you so far. Driving on. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is what Isaiah says. You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What Isaiah says is there is a condition that we have that we have hardened our hearts to the point where we are not in a position to be able to hear properly what it is that God is trying to say to us. And what Jesus says is, and that's why I teach in parables. Because he goes on to say in verse 16, speaking to the disciples, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and they did not hear it. What he says there is, I am intentionally revealing who I am and what the kingdom of God is like. And while I'm doing that, for those who don't have the ears to hear and they don't have the eyes to see, I'm muddying the waters and they're not going to get it. And that's on purpose. What then is the key? Those who have a desire to know about the kingdom of God will come to the king to find out. Are you tracking? So he's talking to the disciples, the men whom he has called to follow him, and he has committed to teach them for however long, whenever we see them at different stages along the gospel narratives, you get to have the secrets. You get to hear because he's going to tell them. In fact, on more than one occasion, we'll look at this in, later on in Mark, they ask him, well, why do you do this? Like, and then Jesus basically gives this answer. It's Mark's, um, it's Mark's accounting of this. And then he basically says, if you don't get this, you don't understand any of the parables, is what he says. So for us, here's the critical part. When you are looking at the parables, you must approach them from a position of faith. You must. You must. Which, by the way, is that actually any different than any other way that we approach the scriptures? So for us, we're like, yeah, that's natural. And this is where it kind of runs afoul from that idea of like, well, Jesus, the master teacher, he's going to teach in such a way that everyone can comprehend. Well, no. They will be able to comprehend some or something, but they're not going to get the full spiritual depth of what it is that he's trying to teach them. 
Does that make sense? And I would say he does that on purpose so that Isaiah might be fulfilled, so that we might come to him. The implication is that for those of us who have a desire to know, we're going to go to the king. And when you go, what can we be assured that Jesus is going to do? He's going to tell you. He'll tell you all about it. Right? This is the critical aspect. So if you are coming to the scripture... Right? Anthony preached on this not last Sunday, but the one before. One of the big things he said is, if you're not coming to church to expect to hear from God, then what are you doing? Let me add to that. If you are reading the scriptures not intending to hear from God, what are you doing? We're just filling up our head with facts and trivia. Yeah? You're just reading. But that's not what this is about. We are coming to the scriptures so that we might learn more about who God is, what he demands of us, what he promises us, and how we ought to live as a result, right? So when you come to the parables, it's the exact same thing, just in a smaller package, yeah? So here's what we're going to do. For the next 25 minutes or so, I'm going to give us seven general guidelines on how to interpret the parables. And the way we're going to start it off is we're going to look at Matthew 18 because the first three we're really going to center on this parable that we have here. So if you have your Bible in Matthew 18, um, chapter, fifth, uh, excuse me, chapter 18, starting in verse 15, does anyone have a subheading in your Bible that tells you this is what this next section is about? Be like little children. Be like little children in Matthew 18, 15. Well, I don't have Okay, restoring your brother. This is where that kind of church discipline um, passage comes out, where this is really what you are supposed to do when your brother sins against you. Yes? Does that make sense? Then you look down in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother if he sins? Should I do it seven times? Which I've always found fascinating because I don't really know the answer to this question, but do you think Peter meant that as like an incredibly like magnanimous thing, this magnanimous gesture, I'll forgive him seven times. Or if that was like, if he just really lowballed it, like I don't know, but Jesus is like, yeah, no, that's not seven, more like 77. Yeah, is that better? Right? The whole point is like, you forgive always, right? And then what happens through this parable, let's just read a couple of highlights. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven because Jesus is using parables to teach about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Are you seeing how this works out? May be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He starts settling accounts. There's this one cat who rolls in, and he owes an absurd amount of money that he could never pay back. And the king goes, you know what? You're forgiven. Have a good day. Sends homeboy out. Let's pick it up a little bit later. Uh, verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him about a hundred denarii, which is not a small amount, but I mean, like, compared to the absurd amount this dude was just forgiven of, it's minuscule, right? He owed him about a hundred bucks, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. You follow the parable a little bit later, the king finds out that this dude did that, calls him back in and says, God, what are you doing? Didn't I forgive you this absurd amount? And the dude's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, okay, and why didn't you forgive this other dude? Oh, I don't know. Okay, take everything he has and throw him in chains. 
That's basically how the parable ends. Then you look down there in verse 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Hey, if your brother sins against you, forgive him. Go to him. Make every effort. Take another guy if it doesn't work. In fact, if you need to get some more, do it. But if it eventually comes to it, you need to bring it before the church. Incidentally, Jesus is talking about the church before the church actually like exists in the way that we think about it. Like This just tells you that Jesus knows what's going to happen in the future. But he says, this is how you handle when people sin. Peter's like, okay, so like seven times I'm supposed to forgive this dude? All right, well, Peter, let me unroll this massive parable for you. And the end story is you forgive to the degree in which you were forgiven, which is an insurmountable amount. Yeah? So that's the parable we have in our minds. Here's our first uh, guideline for this. Number one, pay attention to the immediate context for any given parable. And what I mean by that is maybe you need to read or scan a chapter before. Maybe you need to scan a chapter afterwards. Hey, I can get all these notes to you. I've got them all on a PDF. You'll be good to go. I'll get you taken care of. So pay attention to that immediate context for a couple of reasons. One, there might be stories that are related that are these accounts of a conversation that Jesus is having with someone individually, whether it's Peter or whether it's the Pharisees or whether it's the scribes or um, whoever, right? And he might be responding to the conversation with a parable. In fact, Jesus may even explain it. Why would we not just keep reading a little bit and find out what Jesus says the parable means? Seems like a pretty wise thing to do, right? So in our story here in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many times do I have to do this? And that was prompted by Jesus' teaching on what to do when it comes to someone sinning against you. And the answer is forgive them, okay? How many times? And then Jesus is like, all the times. That's how many. Oh, one more than that? Okay, well then all the times plus one. Do, do that, right? That's the answer. So look at the immediate context because that's going to tell you how you should understand the parable at the end of the day. Yes? So number one, pay attention to the immediate context. Number two, identify the primary elements being compared, right? So... Let's look in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. What are the primary elements being compared here? The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and a king who wants to settle debts. Okay, so now we've got, that's the third time since we've been talking. They're getting lit up out there. Um, so he is comparing a king and a kingdom who has these debts that need to get settled and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to teach us a little bit more about that. So identify what are these primary elements? Because remember, parabole means to lay beside, to compare, to set two things next to each other and learn about it, right? So identify whatever these elements are. And then lastly on this slide, you should anticipate metaphoric or hyperbolic language. That is meant intentionally. Jesus is not spinning a yarn here and coming up with some grandiose details for no reason. He is using meta, uh, uh, metaphoric language and hyperbolic language to bring out these unexpected details, to heighten those unexpected details. In this story, what that is is there is this guy uh, 
In verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Like, this is more than a lifetime's worth of wages. That's how much this cat owes. That is meant to like, wow, that's shocking. And then that same dude who is forgiven that amount goes and chokes a guy for a hundred bucks. Like you see how those are like incredibly dramatically different amounts. Well, but here's the point. Like when we are reading the parables, you should anticipate seeing this wild kind of language. The Good Samaritan, right? What is so shocking about the parable of the Good Samaritan? There's this dude who's beat up on the side of the road and basically left for dead. Who passes him? A priest. Like, man, if there's somebody who ought to know what mercy looks like, it should be the priest. And he walks right by. And then after him, it's who? A couple of Levites, some guys who work at the temple. Okay, but man, they should know. And they walk right by. And then who comes by? This dirtbag Samaritan. Right? If you're a Jew in that day, you looked down on these guys, and he's the one that says, you know what, I'm going to have mercy on this Jew. Like, those are incredibly incredulous details to add because it heightens the comparison, right? By the way, uh, parabole means to set beside or to throw beside. Hyperbole, hooperbole, means to throw beyond. That's where we get our word for hyperbolic language. Hooperbole, to throw beyond. So you use language that goes above and beyond to prove a point, right? Make sense? So number one, look at the immediate context. Number two, identify those primary elements that are being compared. And then number three, look for this shocking kind of language. It's intentional, okay? That's not Jesus lying. It's a parable. That's the way it's meant to work, yeah? All right, here's our fourth... Uh, Fourth tip, guide point, what did I call it earlier? What did I call it? Yeah, guideline. There we go, guideline. All right, here we go. Number four, identify the key characters and concepts that point to greater or more significant characters or concepts. So in this, initially what we said in that second set of uh, guidelines was look for the things that are being compared. Those two things will have an additional layer up so the king and his kingdom, they're settling debts, they represent in a more, uh, to a more full way, God in his kingdom. Are you tracking with that? So once you identify the elements that are being compared, then you need to see if those things have a correlation to the kingdom of heaven, to God's kingdom, to a character in, in the parable that we know is clearly somebody that's really important. To wit, let me give you this one. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable. There's this guy who has this vineyard, and it's got all sorts of produce. It's really productive, and he rents it out to these tenants. And then the end of their term, they're supposed to pay the, the landowner what they owe. And so he sends a servant, and they beat him up, and they send him back. Okay? He sees that. He sends more servants. They beat them up. And then I think eventually they kill one. So then they, the landowner sends his own son... Wink, wink, yeah, sends his own son to the tenants, and they say in Mark chapter 12, verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they kill him. And then the vineyard owner learns about it, and he comes and he wrecks shop. Now, 
what is the greater or more significant characters there? Who is the landowner? Who is that person representing? God the Father. And he sends his only son, the heir, Jesus. And what do they do to him? They kill him, right? It's like you see how this is Jesus' method of comparing two things, but those things that he's using to lay side by side in the story, it goes another level up. And they are comparing something to greater in reality. Normally it's either God and his kingdom or what forgiveness really looks like. It's something along along those lines. Yeah? Seen that? So that was number four. Here's the number five guideline. Do not press every element or every detail beyond its intended level of importance. Okay? This is the number two thing that we mess up with parables. Number one, we miss that it's intentionally obscuring as he is revealing. The second element is we try to make every single thing super meaningful and not every detail in the parable is meant to be either allegorical or incredibly deeply meaningful. Okay? So here's the thing. This is a problem for us because a lot of times whenever we start getting more maturity in our walk with God and we have more knowledge about the Bible, we start making other connections. And sometimes those are warranted and sometimes they're not. The best way that I have found to guard against us doing this wrongly is reading Scripture together in community. Right? Hey, I was reading this the other day, Jenny, and this is what I think is going on here. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm making this connection. Does that seem right to you? And then someone who's more mature than me, who is understanding not only the scriptures, but understands faith better, would say, actually, I see exactly what you're getting at. I think that's a great observation, right? And then the next week, I take my observations over to RO, and I say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in the scriptures. And RO just starts shaking his head and goes, no, man. No, like you, you missed it. You missed it. But that's, here's the five reasons why everything you just said was wrong, right? Start taking your observations to other Christians and just let them suss it out. Remember, the task is that we prayerfully prepare before we read Scripture. We make good observations. Then we have to make right interpretations and then legitimate applications, Right? If we mess up either on the observations or the interpretations, one of the first lines of defense against that is other believers, right? So the guy who says, man, I can worship God just as well on a deer stand as I can in Sunday morning in here in this room, like I get what you're saying, but you're still wrong, like you are. Because whenever you start reading the parables or something else and you get some goofy idea that literally no one on earth has ever had, Like, the only way you're going to know that is by telling somebody your goofy thought and them saying, no, that's a goofy thought. Right? Are you tracking with me? Like, this is, it's not as difficult as we want to make it. And this is where the risk comes with the parables is we want to make every detail incredibly significant. Sometimes they are. A lot of times they're not. Okay? You all tracking with that? All right. Here is guidelines number six and seven. Number six. Identify the main idea of each parable. Simple as that. A lot of times if you are reading the parable and you come across, hey, I feel like there is just this one point from the story. A lot of times Jesus will tell you, right? In Matthew 18, verse 35, so also my father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What then is the main point of this parable in Matthew 18? then you need to rightly forgive your brother regardless of what he owes you, regardless of the offense. You forgive, 
That's the main idea, right? Now, I will say this. Um, my pastor in uh, Louisville, Bob Cook, um, he always said that for as many characters as there are in a parable, that is how many applications there can be. You can have several applications of one main idea, but generally speaking, there's one idea, right? Have you ever noticed like how quickly you can read one parable at a time? It doesn't take very long at all because it's, they're meant to be short. I don't know if we should see 10 main points from a parable that takes four verses to tell, right? So find the one main idea and there you have it, yeah? Here's the next point, last one. Remember that every parable demands a response from us. It demands a response. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The application then would be, you need to forgive rightly, regardless of the offense, yes? You gotta look for application. This was actually one of the main things we talked about. Prayerfully prepare, make good observations, make right interpretations, legitimate applications. Every single time, every time you crack open the Bible. Every time. If not, all we're doing is just gathering trivia. Does that make sense? All right, any questions about the seven guidelines? I'll give them to us real quick. One, find the immediate context. Oop, didn't actually have it in there. Find the immediate context. Uh, two, find the comparison. Three, Anticipate this heightened language. Four, identify the key characters or concepts that are relating to something that's more significant. Don't approach every element as though it is incredibly important. It may not be. Six, identify the main idea. Seven, apply it rightly. Yeah? All right, so this is what we're going to do. Get in groups of two or three, and you are going to read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to do those seven things over the next... I got 23 minutes. So y'all got about seven or eight minutes to read. Read them together. Pull together your ideas about what the main idea is, what's the context, um, that type of jazz, and then we're going to talk about it. Yeah? This is where y'all move together to make that happen. Ready, set, go. All right. You have now read Mark 4, 1 through 9. Let me ask this. Is there anything in the immediate context that will help us here? 13 through 20. What happens in 13 through 20? Jesus explains the parable, right? So when I ask, what do the different soils correlate to by comparison? You should already know the answer because Jesus gave it to us. No, 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 no. This is me teaching you to apply what we just talked about. That's what's happening here. All right, so let's take it a step further. Immediately, you should have looked a little bit below to see, all right? Now, I will point this out. How many, how many parables precede this parable in Mark? Anybody want to take a quick scan? I'll give you a hint. The number is less than one. This is the first now, this is the first parable in Mark's account, which, by the way, is the first gospel that was written down. This is the first parable from the first gospel. And guess what? Jesus tells you what you need to do with parables right here. Do you see that? 
from the very first time that we see the word parable or understand what it is in Mark, he actually tells us, hey, I know y'all aren't going to get this, and so I'm going to make sure I include the fact that Jesus told us how to interpret parables, right? Skip down just a little bit in verse 10. And when he was alone, he's away from the crowds from verse 1, right? There was this big crowd. He got into a boat. He gets done teaching. He seems to get back out of the boat. And there is this littler crowd with the disciples. And what do they do? Hey, Jesus, man. Like, what? Right? That's basically their question. When he was alone, those around him with the 12, with his disciples, they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And this is Mark going, pay attention. You're going to need this for the rest of the parables, right? He's telling you, this is how you understand the parables. Go to Jesus to get the answer. That is the immediate context. Not only does he tell us, but in Mark, it's the first one, and he tells us. Yeah? Isn't that awesome? Like, that Mark bakes into his gospel account how to interpret Mark. This is where I say, man, this is divinely inspired. Like, I wouldn't have thought to do that. I'm definitely not that smart, right? So, he goes on to talk about those things. All right, let's drive on with some other questions. Do you notice any heightened or hyperbolic language? There's really only like one possible answer. There's not much, but there's, there's something there. Any hyperbolic language or heightened language at least? Rich? I took a vow of silence. You took a vow of silence. <laughs> Go ahead. Doesn't that seem weird? Like, did this dude just not pay attention? Like, by the way, like the sower, what details do we have about the sower? Zero. That tells us he's not important, right? He's not the important part. He is not the most important part because everything else has details but him. He's just a guy who goes out there. He is not the main point. I don't believe so. We'll come to that. Well, maybe we'll, 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 when we come back around to the main point, I want to hear your argument. I don't think that he is the main point here. The sower is not. The seed is where you find the main point. But... Is there any other heightened language that you see? He's got to get it out of the sack. Yes. So I think that there is an element of obedience. He is a farmer. He is a sower. He is doing what he's supposed to do. And that's the last details we hear about the guy, right? But then we get details for every type of soil that the seed then lands on, right? Do you watch the equipment today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which means it, the, the equipment knows what you've got to distribute and where and how much. Okay, I'm tracking with you. No, no, I'm right there with you, but this is my point. Like, I don't think that's the main point, and I think some of this other stuff will come out from there. The only other, not to get lost in the sauce here with the heightened language, do you have an answer? There you go. So you got 30, 60, and 100 fold. Some people will read that and go like, that's kind of absurd. I don't think it's necessarily absurd, but it is the only detail that actually gives us like some drama here. 
right? That might be about the only ones. And so within this parable, there's not a whole lot of hyperbolic language, and I admit that right now. But whenever you're reading the other parables, like the Good Samaritan, this cat who gets choked because he owed this other guy a hundred bucks, like, yeah, that's, that's language that's meant to elevate the, the teaching itself, right? So there's not a whole lot in here, but I think that's the other element where we do see Jesus introducing us to parables here in Mark, yeah? Mm-hmm. And there are going to be times when it's all rejected mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Yep. And so Matt, what would come back into, like, is that the main point? And we can have that conversation. So hold on to those comments. Because the next question gets to your point there. Depending on what you call the main point, how you apply that into your life will be different. Yeah. So let's ask that next question. What do the different soils correlate to by comparison? Now, if you didn't read the next nine verses, you may not have the answer, but if you read the next nine verses, you should get an answer, right? What do those soils correlate to? The hearing the word or not hearing the word. Okay, so you, you just jumped ahead a little bit, though. Well, you, no, 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 you, you did the right thing. No, I'm saying. From 13 there you go. Right now. If you read, you will see that this soil, the, excuse me, the seed that falls on the, uh, I always forget the order, the path, the rocky ground, and then the, uh, the shallow soil, right? And he explains each one of those and what happens to them. But here's the deal. How many types of soil are there here? There are four that are listed, but really there's only two, correct? What are the two types of soil? Say again? That that produces something and that which does not. It is more complex than that. I'm not arguing that. But whenever you come back to it, you see how I'm saying there is a comparison that those soils relate to something within the parable. But then when Jesus gives the example and the, the meaning of it, he elevates it and says there is two kinds of soil, that which is producing something and that which does not. You see how those relate to something higher in magnitude? You seeing that? And so that's where I see these layers of the parables coming in. And remember... This is out of the mouth of Jesus. He is intentionally obscuring these things from those who didn't stick around to hear the explanation. But the ones who came to him and they got the answer, just a ballpark question, do you, which soil do you think they were most likely? The unproductive kind or the kind that will reproduce? They wouldn't be there long. They wouldn't be there long, not all of them. But I would say that, that categorically, they're more likely to be the productive kind than the unproductive because they are the ones who came. Like, that's the reason Mark adds those details. Yeah? So, this is where we can have different disagreements about what the main point is. By the way, good Christians disagree all the time about parables. What is the main point that your group came up with? What was the main point of the parable that you saw? Aro, did I cut you off there? I'm sorry. Was there something else you wanted to add? No? Okay. Gotcha. So what was the main point that your group said, this is what I think the parable is about, primarily? Ask Ed Tamarius. Ed Tamarius. You got the notes. <laughs> well, no, the one thing was, was simply there's opposition to everything that, that mm-hmm. do. There's opposition to everything? He's sending out sowers, and that would be... He's sending out what? Sowers. Sowers, yes. But, 
Mm-hmm. Right. We have to put it in. We have to put it in the historical context for Mark. Yes. I think that would be a big indicator of what the main point is. Are you tracking with me? So Sue says, verse 9 says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the very next thing is some guys come to him like, I don't understand. What are you trying to say? And then Jesus says, get out of here. You should have figured it out. No. He says, okay, this is what it means. And he tells them. There you go, Paul. That those who are coming, yep. Okay. I think that is a good option for what the main point is. And what Paul said there, for, for those who didn't hear, like this is an encouragement for those who are going to be going out over the next three years to sow, hey, you know, qualitatively here, three of the four soils don't reproduce. And so really you only got two kinds of soil. We might even say the majority of people won't respond. But he says... Keep sowing because there are some who will. The Living Bible says it's got some you know, different words. New Living's good. It's a different translation. It's got though they see and hear, they will not understand or turn to God or be forgiven. For their sins. And where they're getting the don't, they won't return to God and be forgiven for their sins. They're reading that in from Isaiah six nine and ten because that is in detail the more expansive quote that Jesus is referencing there. So anybody else want to say this is what I think the main point is? Chad. Yeah, I think it's verse nine. Verse nine. So in what sense is verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? How is that the main point? And then those who apparently have ears to hear come to him and say, hey, can you explain this in a little more detail? Okay, I can get down with that, especially, and this is, let me illustrate this. If you have a different answer for what the main point is, I would argue maybe how much you read of Mark and how familiar you are with all of Mark might determine what you think the main point is. Because if you didn't know this was the first parable that sets the paradigm for all the other parables, you might miss that the main point is, hey, you've got to have ears to hear in order to understand this. So you've got to come to the king to understand the kingdom, right? But if you didn't understand that, then maybe you're just looking at the parable in isolation. And I'm not at all saying that that's like the wrong thing to do. I'm not at all. What I'm saying is there's more detail that we can glean in other ways, okay? Yes? Yeah, so to distill that comment there, Paige, like it's not just uh, this, it's kind of a two-sided coin. It's not just who out there is going to hear and respond, but you yourself should determine whether you are hearing and responding. You can actually see a little bit later on there in verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are those who hear the word. You notice that the metaphor went away from being the, the soil? He's not even talking about the soil anymore. The soil 
Okay, cool. But what they are, they're the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Now, if you are in that category of those who are producing fruit 30, 60, or 100-fold, and of course our accountant would be the one who would average out what the, the general yield would be, but if you're categorically in that group that produces something, then you should be able to see if you are or not. So I, I don't think that that's necessarily, at a minimum, that is a proper application. So let me just spin it forward to you. Let's say that is the main point. How do you live differently today in light of this parable? That's the question. Because we can have the comments and the debate all we want about what the main point is. If we do not intend to go out and live differently tonight and tomorrow, I'm done with teaching tonight. There's no reason for us. Okay, so then tell me, how are you going to live differently tomorrow as a result of this? Sue Foote. Maybe she said the quiet part out loud. There it is, right? I don't have plans to do anything tomorrow. You know what? No, 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 okay, and, and I'm picking on you, but I, I know that, but this is what I would say. If this was in a setting, like if we were at an evangelism conference and some evangelist was up here teaching and said, hey, what are y'all doing tomorrow? And some guy's like, oh, I'm not doing anything. You know what that dude's most likely to do? Like, cool, well, I'm gonna pick you up at 10 tomorrow. We're gonna be busy, me and you tomorrow. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, this does, in fact, demand application. So what are we going to do? There's the answer. But that's a little vague. Let's make it a little more specific. Sue Major. You are not responsible for the response because the sower, who is an important figure, I don't think is the main impor most important figure because he is throwing the seed. What actually is the active agent in what happens when that seed hits the ground? The seed itself, first and foremost, and the ground it lands on. It's either going to be productive or not. And so whenever it comes back to this point of um, recognizing that you have a responsibility to be uh, obedient, yeah, absolutely. I think you should take that away. Yes, that is an application. But the moment that we say, actually, the most important main point here is the sower is going out every single day and he's doing this. I think you might get off on how to interpret these other elements, especially after Jesus tells you what they mean. Yeah? You see the danger there? Whenever you elevate a detail, or in this case, a lack of detail, and you elevate it beyond its proper means within the parable, it can obscure what the right interpretation and then the application would be. Yeah? Okay, so we've kind of we've kind of talked about this parable, and it is now 7:30. But I do want to ask this: Do you have questions about parables in general? Because we didn't really deal with a lot of hyperbolic language here. Um, I think Jesus routinely uses hyperbolic language. The more you look for it, the more you'll see it. R.O. Mm -hmm. The Japanese and Chinese were bickering with now. They purchased 40 to 50 percent of our farm products. Mm -hmm. But we say, uh huh. What does it mean? They're buying up our farmland every 
the, produ the products. Yeah. What's, and so where are you heading with that? Mm-hmm. Right. And we pay little attention and we don't watch it. You don't, you're not watchful. Yeah. Never watchful. I get you. Other questions or comments about the parables in general? I find the parables to be fascinating and I find them at times to be difficult to deal with. Like just, let's be honest. Sometimes you're reading it and like, ah, man, what is the deal with this? story that Jesus is like, I don't get it. Well, guess what? You get a whole lifetime to meditate on it and to read it in community and have other people tell you what they have seen and what they've observed. And that is actually the point. Go to learn about the kingdom from the king. And you have his inspired word and you have his people who have the spirit of God within them to help you do that. So that's what we do. All right. Next week, we will not be meeting here because we're not going to be meeting at all. You should be doing Thanksgiving type things. So when we come back, we're going to start handling all the letters of the New Testament, the epistles. And then we've got the apocalyptic literature on December 7th. And then we are donezo. Um, What's next? What is next? We are actually going to be looking at the Gospel of John. So up here, we're going to be doing the Gospel of John. We are not going to be able to hit every single verse of every single chapter. It's just there's too much. Um, so we're going to take, I think, 15 weeks where we're actually going to have content. Um, we're going to do 15 weeks of that up here. And downstairs, um, Joe Garner is actually going to be teaching a class on spiritual disciplines. He's going to be walking through what it means and how to read your Bible well, how to pray well, what fasting means, how you do it. Um, so they're going to be doing spiritual disciplines downstairs, and we're going to be walking through um, the Gospel of John up here. Wednesday nights. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We know that you are the good shepherd and that you desire to give us life and life abundantly. And Father, I pray that as we endeavor to understand more about your word and more about you, God, I pray that we would do that in community and that we would be transformed because of what it is that we read. And so, Father, we thank you. And God, I ask that you will have been honored by our time tonight and that we will have been edified. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you need notes, I got them up here. I'll get you taken care of.